Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, I just want to thank the bookstore for this evening. Uh, I am so honored to actually be here in Silver Lake, where we, my husband and I lived across, well, around the corner. And um, I think probably there might be a story in there that happened when we were living around the corner. Oh, we were going to try to do it non-mic. I see. Is that okay with everybody? Can you everyone hear me? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, okay. And um, so thank you to the bookstore, and thank you for everybody who's come. It means a lot to me, and um, I uh, want to thank Brenda most of all, because she's a really big part of um, how this collection sort of came together, uh, in part because her husband, John Carroll Lynch, was in um, two movies that were adapted from Freak Weather Stories, and um, working with actors and has been a really big part of how this book came together. So that is actually one reason why I wanted Brenda and asked Brenda, Brenda to work with me tonight to read a story, because it felt so much a part of how this collection came into being. I'm not sure I would have even put it together if I hadn't seen the stories performed didn't really know that there was a collection until I saw it performed. So um, I'd like to bring that experience back to you with Brenda, um, who will read tonight um, in our house. Nobody likes my sister. Uh-huh. Even so, nobody's killed her yet, and she turns 11 today, so I'm baking her a birthday cake. <laughs> Wasn't my idea. God, take my right hand, Mother likes to say, but she doesn't believe in God. I don't need it with Desiree to get the job done. She and Dad have gone to a farm for my sister's present. This cake is a nightmare. Why Mother couldn't just pick something from a regular cake and frosting box? I don't know. There's a half dozen layers, and she bought unsweetened coconut, so I have to sugar it up with other ingredients. Will someone tell me why I'm going to this trouble when my sister hates coconut? She says it tastes like plastic feathers. Maybe Mother doesn't really want my sister to eat it. Jane may be thin now, Mother says, but it could catch up in the next mouthful. And when it comes to Jane, Mother can't think straight. It doesn't stop with this recipe straight out of greatest gourmet challenges. <clears throat> Jane trudges in from outside. Her shoe slaps the floor and she's breathing like a hound after a race. That's because her sinuses are always congested. Now with all those allergies, you'd think she'd stay away from spring flowers. But <laughs> the great outdoors is Jane's thing. So Mother stops up on pocket size Kleenex packs to keep the cuffs of Jane's shirts clean. Just another Mother's futile exercises. Think Jane uses them? <laughs> what stinks, Jane says, routing, mouth, m- routing mud from the tread of her elevator shoe with a twig. 
I point to the mess she's making. She just glares at me and then points to the mess I'm making on the counter. I'm baking your birthday cake, I said. How come Mom's not making it? She's rifling through Dad's tool drawer now. Mom's getting a present. The rabbit is a surprise. <laughs> she better get me that fucking rabbit. <laughs> Waving a pair of wire cutters for the hut she's building and limps out the back door again. <clears throat> My sister has a terrible mouth. None of us can quite remember when it started. Dad likes to say, Perhaps it was the baby bottle that elicited the first curse, which I say, good thing mother breastfed me. <laughs> Washing Jane's mouth out with soap or dabbing hot sauce on her tongue only spices up the curses. So now, mother and dad ignore. The other day, I told Jane she sounded like her dad was a drunken sailor, and mother slapped my face. The first time in my 12 years, you should know better than that, Desiree. Sailors are a sensitive topic in our house. Both Jane's dad and mine are in the Navy. Dad's a lieutenant, though. Perfect, Desiree, Mother says as I pull the cake pans out of the oven. The third and final stage of the leavening process. Damn ridiculous cake, I said. You sound like your sister, says Dad, setting a cardboard box on the floor. <clears throat> Desiree will never talk like her sister, Mother says, thumbing off her high heels. She doesn't have the vocabulary. She hands me the china cake plate with the marine blue trim. It's printed in gold with my name and date of birth. We don't have a plate with Jane's name. Oh, I say, I know the words, Mother. The skill comes in not using them. Dad winks at me, believing I'm witty. He lifts off the lid of the cardboard box. Long, long ears rise up. <laughs> Is it the one she wanted? I say, watching the nose flick along the rim of the box. It's a rabbit, Dad says. Good enough, Mother says. I wonder if it is. If anything is. Jane has opened her presents and is reading out loud from the book I gave her called Amazing Animal Facts. <laughs> the rabbit sits in the cardboard box on the dinner table. She's named him Rude Boy. <laughs> Listen to this, Desiree, Jane says as she jams her toe into the heel of her elevator shoe. She does this, I've noticed, when she's really excited. The female pond snails vaginas in her head. <laughs> Mother hands me the cake knife from the good silver drawer, and I light 11 blue candles. Through the little flames, I see Jane's face above the book, the pale, veined skin set against the black, black hair. Not a bit like Mother's. But it's a pretty face. If only she'd smile. The female octopus has got its vagina in her nose, Jane reads aloud. If approached by the male octopus when not in season, the female octopus will bite off his penis. That's enough, Jane. snatches <laughs> <laughs> the book out of her hands. A female tortoise gets itself ready to mate, Jane goes on from memory now, by eating its own cake, I say, <laughs> as I set it on the table beside the box, the candlelight edging the rabbit's ears in red. 
Happy birthday to you. Dad sings in an operatic voice that makes us laugh. I wish Make a wish, Jane. Pushing right up close to the cake, my sister laps up frosting with her tongue. Coconut, she says. Fucking A. <laughs> Blow out the candles, Janie, mother says, sounding ready for bed. Jane blows and the room goes dark. Mama, I want to cut the cake, Jane says, reaching for the knife in my hand. I look at mother. The cake's very delicate, Jane, mother says, turning the cake plate toward me. Your sister will cut it. Bullshit! It's my birthday cake, Jane says, prying my fingers off the knife handle. The cake teeters, so many layers, as the knife drops from my hand and strikes the table. The rabbit leaps out of the box, <laughs> spooked, hind legs knocking the cake platter. Cake and plate balance at the table's edge, then crash. The plate hits the floor and explodes. Porcelain splinters. A silver shoots like a sliver shoots like an arrow into the thick part of mother's heel. She stares at the thing, maybe waiting for blood. But this, this is a clean puncture. A hind leg thumps the rug, thumps the rug. Get rid of that damned animal, mother says. Dad hits Jane harder than I've ever seen him hit anything. Jane stumbles out of her shoe to fall on the floor. Help your mother, Dad tells me as he picks up the rabbit by the neck's loose skin. He reaches out a hand to Jane. Come outside, Jane, my father says. She takes his hand solemnly, mute for a change, and they go outdoors. Jane, without her shoe. It's her birthday, mother calls sadly after them. Mother falls in love with sailors but doesn't like the sea. Only once did she swim in it. The current pulled me out where I didn't want to go, she says. After Mother married Dad, she cooked us three squares a day in their Navy-issued kitchen until one morning when she stirred up the oatmeal and left it beside me in my high chair. She walked out of the house and hopped into the car of a sailor driving to his base on the West Coast. Eight months later, she called Dad. Scarlet fever must have sounded pretty bad. The very next day, she was spooning soup into my mouth over the big ball of her stomach. When Jane's time came, my mother refused to abandon her sick child, even as they handed her into the ambulance. As to Jane's credit, she made it out of mother's belly at all. One leg shorter than the other was a small price to pay for a mother who hollered in the delivery room, it got in there without my consent, it can get out of there by its own self. <laughs> Jane likes to say that the sailor in California might have made a swimmer of mother if she'd stayed. Jane can say whatever she likes. Mother came back to that and made... Desiree, Mother says, and it occurs to me that my name suits me well. She hands me a trash bag. The cake slumps upside down, but intact, on the floor. Mother kisses me on the crown of my head before turning to the stairs, taking one step at a time. Fingers looped through the straps of her high heels. Mother is babying her injured foot. 
Dad swings open the back door, the twilight and glorious ink behind him before the door bangs shut. His cheeks are red and his large hands hang at his side. He doesn't see me as he follows mother up the stairs. I scoop cake into the trash bag. I'm sorting through the broken pieces of plate, determined to find the bit with my name on it. When I see Jane's shoe, every scary, rubbery, black inch of it. Outside, she's sitting with her dead rabbit stretched across oh. her legs. Mm-hmm. Her sock may be bunched at the heel. I don't think she's angry. She knows how it is in our house. I push my toes inside Jane's elevator shoe. The stiff leather cuts into my ankle as I get my balance. Though I'm older, we wear some of the same clothes, Jane and I. Still, I am surprised by the fit. I wonder if Jane has tried on some of my shoes, pretending she's me. I walk in a circle, going up and slamming down on the other foot. How does Jane do it? Come and go as she does. I made the shoes ugly, but not on Jane. On her, on Jane, the ugly shoe fits. Jane taps on the kitchen window above the sink. I hobble over in her shoe. When I open the window, she's yawning. Are Bob and Dad in bed? Probably asleep, I say. Sorry about your bunny, I say. What? I'll say a prayer, I say. Say what you want, Jane says. He's sitting in the hutch. Dad said, keep rude boy outdoors until Mom pulls off. Oh, I say, I knew that. See my shoe, she says, my foot's cold. No. Take off the fucking shoe, Desiree. Say it nicely, I say. You know, Jane, people will like you more if you do. they were performed in a live setting like this as a spoken word, that I began to see that there was a kind of 
identity to the people who had inhabited the book. And I had seen these characters as sort of discreet and difficult and um, like a lot of things that nobody would really want to spend much time with. But then when <laughs> I saw them, uh, five of them or four or five of them performed, I really saw a kind of voice that came through, a kind of identity that came through the stories. And um, it helped me to put the collection together. And that was when I did put it together and I sent it out and I was lucky enough to get the Grace Haley Award. And that was really an honor to me because um, it felt like, I, don't, I can't describe to you how important it was for me to have uh, actors be a part of the process of understanding what a story is. Probably because I had a film background. I do have a film background. I really believe in the art of the sort of the monologue and the delivery of the story. But also what happened too is that I was able to go back to the work itself and really get rid of what didn't need to be there, what was extra, and where you actually might give um, the reader a room to leave the story, a little exit. And when you watch it performed, I mean, if you're really blessed and, you know, the only person performing it is Brenda, then you'll never know when they can get out. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you're not always, it's not always like that. And you can really begin to see and hear, oh, okay, okay, there's exits in this story. And it was very fascinating to me to then go back and revise, knowing uh, where I could close the doors. So it just seems really important to the process of the story to have someone perform the story for you. Does anybody have what? No. Does anybody have any questions? Is is your book on tape already, like an audio book? No, but I I I think that's going to be an exciting next step. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that seems important. To yeah. Um, any more questions? Anybody have questions? I'm just wondering. Uh, I, I, in the beginning, I, I could really s see the, all the characters. They were delightfully amusing until they weren't. And it really touched me, the innocence of children and being uh, cruel adults. There's a lot of it going on in the world these days where young we're hearing now about young children who are used the dead rabbit kind of pushed me over the edge. Well, we found out at the end that the rabbit's not dead. So. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. The rabbit's resurrected. In other words, yeah. it, 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 what you said at the end of the story is that the rabbit is actually in the hutch, yeah, alive. in the hutch. It's oh, just that thank God. somebody. <laughs> 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 I didn't yeah. Somebody did wish that rabbit was dead. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for I'm sorry I missed it. I'm glad I asked. Did you find your, your own life seeping into these stories? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I actually, uh, that the cake thing happened a little bit in uh, my childhood. Not me, but... Um, Siblings, yeah. I mean, it's impossible. I think that that's the beauty of writing is, is spinning from the little 
moments in your life that you can't solve and you never you didn't you never can find a recipe or a fix for those things and to me those are the moments that it's interesting to go in and kind of kind of see if you can massage something out of it you know I, usually for me it's not redemption <laughs> it's something else it's some other life I don't know Well, I think I'm a little bit suspicious of redemption because I feel that it's been oversold um, the last hundred years. <laughs> uh, so I, um, and I feel like people get, feel cheated out when they don't feel like they got something, they got redeemed, they got, you know, their, their uh, goodness back. And, uh, I think that, particularly for me, I'm interested in characters who are um, more full of life and full of flaws and um, than they are in, in being good. Because um, I think that's what I feel like I've lived a lot more with, is just living with my uh, character. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I also think that redemption is also a, a lie a lot of the times. It's a false, another false exit out of a door, and um, we're not offered it almost ever. And so we, we might make it up, or we go to stories for the lie. And I'm, uh, I'm willing to, to 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 see what else might be found. What else can be found? Um, I don't know. To me, sometimes truth. I would say maybe just truth. But. Um, in that story, in fact, um, I think that she has a painful, you know, it's a very typical thing you might see in a short story, honestly, but she just has a moment of being, um, you know, shaken out of her solipsism or out of her point of view. And um, that this, the narrative isn't writing the way, she thinks she's got it under control and the narrative isn't unfolding in that way for her. Just that. I think that seems more truthful to me. That's like the most we can sometimes ask is to be shaken out of our story, so to speak. Um, I wasn't here right at the start, so sorry if this is repeating understanding or introduction. I'm wondering what it is that you might say links the stories in this collection together, whether it's thematic, tonal, what is it in your mind that puts them together in one book? That's a great question. <coughs> I think that I think that goes back to what I was starting to hear when I saw it performed. And um, I would say that the thing that links them, and I don't know if I would have said it before, but I, I'm beginning to feel like the thing that links them is that they're, they need to be told. That there's something about the stories that aren't, um, um, nobody is particularly seeking out these stories that often. We, we may want to hear a story about a kid kids and family dynamics this might be one of the more you know uh, friendlier stories but um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I think it's a sense that you know that there's these feelings of, of powerlessness and then not being able to not finding a sort of uh, moral and, and just and pure way to deal with that sense of being powerless but actually and not even being self-destructive but rather just being very, very frustrated by it and hitting up against your own, um, your own uh, imagination. So um, 
that's what, I don't know if that makes sense. It was just that there would seem to be a unified voice of kind of um, frustration in that. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of interested in here. You have a lot of comedy, obviously, in your stories, but you also have a lot of kind of horror aspects. Um, I know you kind of like to combine those, and I'm wondering if you can speak that way. <laughs> well, I don't, I mean, people are very, um, it depends on how rigid you want to be about horror, I guess. Um, this is a horror, horror, but there's, there is that line of the dead rabbit. Yeah, it's more like what's non-permissible. Um, I guess we're not supposed to have dead rabbits. Um, but, you know, we have like, end up, if you have pets, you end up having a lot more dead ones than that. We're all obvious about it, right? <laughs> we have kids, you know, we know that. Um, so, uh, I don't, um, I find, I find, I find the truth really funny. And um, I, I generally do think that it's often abject. And um, I'm, I, uh, I don't know if I have a soft spot for the abject. I don't know what that's to say. It sounds sort of gruesome. But um, I just think that, the, and I'm in, uh, you know, actually my, some of my newer work, I'm really interested in trying to get at that really kind of physical uh, kind of uh, more, um, Unbounded space, you know. So, uh, don't know if that answers you. Do you? Do you? Because what would you say is comedy and horror? Like, how do you see that as combined? Sometimes the most horrible things are hilarious in that <laughs> kind of strange way. You must be my son. <laughs> <laughs> that is my son. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> do you want to talk about your new work? What no. are you doing now? Uh, oh, um, okay. Um, I'm writing a, a book that's um, called The Onawayans, and it's all a, a book and documents. It takes place in the early 1930s uh, in northern Michigan, and um, it's uh, based on a murder. It's actually based on a true murder that have, um, my stepdad wrote a document about how his um, father was potentially involved in the murder of um, the caretaker at, a, club, at a, a sporting club in northern Michigan. So I took that story and I've been riffing documents off of it. And um, it's, it um, is getting kind of interesting because um, the guy who was murdered, um, he, uh, he comes back to life. And he's sort of like the very un, uh, uh, he's not a very well-behaved, very, you know, responsive revenant. And they, he seems to be the key to understanding the crime, but he's not very helpful with that. Uh, <laughs> sort of and so um, when I was talking about like the abject, I mean, I'm really interested in how their documents and their different stories that work on their own as stories, but then they build into a, an, into a narrative and um, I like the idea that they might start to not be able to maintain their boundaries as texts. Sounds very heady. So, um, but that the more kind of horror I think you have, the more you have this desire to contain it. It needs to be contained, right? So. Um, any other questions? 
Well, I did not have the benefit of a Raymond Carver experience with which <laughs> I was not the lucky recipient of that. Um, um, I think Gordon probably worked on a couple of my pieces, like sort of the opening paragraph, and there's another writer in the audience who so probably know what I'm talking about with that, and you can learn a lot just from that, right? Brian Evanson also, <laughs> you know, if you work with Lish, it's just something that he can, he can teach you, like, kind of everything on one of your really lousy paragraphs. Is that not, I mean, for yeah, me, no, I, that's accurate. yes, I mean, everything that the language can do that has nothing to do with content. Uh, but that sounds so, that, that doesn't sound positive, but he lifts off the burden of the content from sometimes for you, where you're just remembering that it's language and language has sound and movement and uh, visual quality and uh, all sorts of sort of more, more musical or something. But I, it's not even that prosaic, it's just yeah. that it has a life and that you can work on that level and on your content. And sometimes, in fact, I'd say most, mostly what he taught me was that the, that form, the sound, the appearance, the the letters themselves, that that can be more of a guide to you about your story than the content. Which just seems so strange, right? I mean, it messed me up for years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also uh, adapted one of his books to be made into a screenplay. So that was another experience of sort of like, that process was almost like trying to be a, like trying to channel him, uh, which also took a long time to recover from. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah, but Gordon's here, so. um, he's, a, he's a real character. He's brilliant, and I think that, uh, I think he actually changed. I personally think that he had a big influence on not just Raymond Carver, but literature in general uh, for a couple of generations. I think he has a huge shadow. That's one of my students. <laughs> <laughs> How do I see short stories differ from screenplays? Well, it's funny you say that because in some ways I think actually screen, uh, short stories are closer to screenplays than the full novel, that's for sure. Um, because they, they will move, if a, a successful sh short story will move through those three acts, I think, they'll hold it in there. Um, and they, they focus generally on one moment, generally on a moment, kind of unit, unit, not always, but often a unity of time and place. And they have that one moment of like, like springing, right? And um, I think actually a really trim, tight, well-designed script can sometimes have that same concentration. And also, the best thing about a short story to me is when a short story does not have anything extra in it. Nothing is brought in that's not necessary. And I think that's also true of a great script, that they're that spare. Now, so if you take a script and you shake it down into just words on a page, it's only like, what, like 30 pages or something. It's not actually even very long. Does that answer your question? I don't see. 
Is there another question? Anybody? about uh, it wasn't about style I don't know how to describe it but about the authenticity I think the the accuracy of the living activity of of these people uh, they're not analytical they're not the kind of uh, human beings described in this way are rarely I find are rarely represented Mm -hmm. I mean I personally probably try to escape some of that myself. Mm-hmm. So to really have it and know, well, that's it. That's just what it is. And just do it. And that's, that's how I think. That's what's coming out of my mouth. There's a wonderful uh, line, and I'm not going oh, to be terrible if I try to paraphrase, but another one of the stories was that the lies just keep coming. <laughs> as this person is literally 
lying. And, but inside, it's like, wow, look at that. I just lied again. <laughs> and I find that, you know, just fantastic. That listening, I think, is good. We tend to project. I tend to project. I shouldn't say we. But I tend to project on characters. The listening to them is far more interesting now for me. This is maybe connected to Isaac's question about um, horror and or the abject and comedy. How do you experience negotiating those things as a woman who's an author? Do you think there's some special magical thing you need to do to make it palatable or are you not interested in that or is it something that's in your mind? Well, I don't... I I'm con consciously I'm not trying to make it palatable. I'm not uh, I'm not very interested in that and in, in, in uh, making sure that people can take it. I mean, I'm actually much more interested interested in seeing how far, uh, particularly in this collection, how far I could push the sort of misbehavior in a sense of uh, in some of the stories of a of a female character. Um, and, and have her still figure something out. I mean, that's actually has been probably my most fundamental um, quarrel with a lot of the fiction that I've read growing up and my experience of fiction and my experience of movies is that I feel like there's not been a whole lot of a mirror for me of women behaving poorly and us watching that journey of knowledge that occurs when you um, behave poorly. And... Um, so I can imagine uh, consciously um, circumscribing that um, in her behavior, but I don't think any of us know what we've done to what our, you know, our moms over our shoulder. You know, I don't know how many times we're still trying to please that person. I do know that, and just to maybe wrap up, it's interesting that the in um, the title story, Creek Weather, when I made the movie based on the short story, and I and I decided to make the movie because when I had sent it out to editorial, I mean to get published, I had a lot of letters written back to me from editorial boards, which never happened again, um, where they said this has completely divided our editorial board. Uh, you know, nobody can decide about this story, and I got that again and again and again. And finally, I just published it in a, a, a magazine that's sort of like a fanzine almost, and it's still around called Spout. And that was the one that took it. And um, and I thought, well, when it came time to, I wanted to adapt one of my stories for a movie, and I knew it had to be very low budget. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go with that story because it divided everybody. I mean, which is not maybe everybody's impulse. <laughs> it and, uh, and it stayed true as a movie. It was completely divisive in how it was received. Some people really loved it. And then, but a lot of times people couldn't deal with the fact that there was a character who had been, was in an abusive relationship but didn't act like a victim. That made people uncomfortable. They didn't like it. They didn't want, they needed to feel sympathy or pity for her. And she doesn't really allow you to. She's just misbehaving, misbehaving and uh, difficult. And, um, uh, but when I went back after years, you know, several years, and sort of hearing these other women's voices, and I went back to the story, I, which is, I think I probably, I maybe have my tombstone, I could say, you know, the person who worked the longest on an eight-page story. <laughs> when I went back to it, I realized that I had trapped her 
in exactly what you're asking about. I had trapped her in my own fears and my own impermissibility and had stopped up the story. And I realized that she, um, she needed to, I actually helped her one more step now to even be even less of a victim. There was still a little, thing, a pretty strong thing still in the story where she was still a victim. And, and in, over all that time, I found that I was liberated enough to make her just get in a bad situation, be mistreated, but also mistreat. And um, in that scene, and um, and that was incredible to me because I actually wondered if there had been something not just shifted in me, but just that, and I'd like to say happily that maybe shifted in the culture that allowed for that freeing up for even more bad behavior from women, <laughs> even self. And yeah, I guess something about that because I think when you buy the book, which of course you all will, <laughs> um, that is the the story of, um, and of course I'm familiar with it, but it's not lest it sound this way, and I don't think it does, but I go to Thelma and Louise, and it's not revenge. There's not, a, there's not an ounce of revenge in it, in the behavior, miss, the misbehavior, which oftentimes I feel justifies when it's a revenge story, mm-hmm. you know, they get back and they get back. It's actually, in a way, tit for tat. Mm-hmm. And that is actually, I think, how how people are more and more aware of it. The, the potential of relationship, regardless of how that relationship is described, is becoming more equal. We needn't talk about the most current uh, stuff, but it's true. So it's not Thelma and Louise. It's not like somebody just goes off and you know, does exactly what's being done to them. I don't know how to describe it, but you want to read the story. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, Well, thank you so much, everybody, for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.